Podcast, your weekly feel-good podcast with Detective Pikachu reviews, a greater in-depth look at Game of Thrones, including the newest episode. I talk about a new documentary I saw on Netflix and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Andrew Logan. Let's dive right in. This week, we cover some ground in a lot of visual media. I talk about Pokemon and lots of Pokemon stuff. We got new chapters. We got new songs. Talk about Detective Pikachu and a whole lot of other shit. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say at the top of the hour that uh, the Patreon live stream this weekend went very well. And if you want access to see the next week's Patreon live stream, you're going to have to go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast. Uh, it will be sometime in June and I will most likely be playing Diablo 2. We did pretty much all of Act 2 uh, for this live stream and it was a ton of fun. I'm uh, on Act 3 now, but I'm saving it for streams and I fucking love Diablo 2. It's so goddamn fun. But if you don't want to do a Patreon support, you can also check out going to cast.com forward slash store where you can buy a mystery book for the low, low price of $99,999. Or a custom book of your choosing at a much discounted price. It's gone way down. Price, and now they're like reasonable. It's crazy. Uh, but let's move on to the Going Up Cast. Thought I'd do something a little bit different this week when we're talking about Game of Thrones, and I'm sure I'll talk about the new episode in this episode of the Going Up Cast. But I am halfway through the rewatch of Game of Thrones. I just finished season four, and from this moment onward, it is uncharted territory for me, except for season eight, which I'm watching right now. That's right. I never watched seasons five, six, or seven. I stopped watching after season four, and for the life of me, I can't remember why. Because season four is very strong. Those final two episodes of season four, the uh, the wildling attack on the wall and the, the follow-up episode, those are strong, strong episodes. Some incredible acting, some incredible storylines coming to a head. It is a remarkably good season. There's some great battles, like the episode on the wall, like that whole. There was that's that's it. That's that episode. No other storylines progress in that episode. It's just it's the Watchers on the wall, and it's just this. It's a battle, and it made me. It was so fucking good. Like, I think I think the hallmark of a great battle scene are the stories being told within it, like with Helm's Deep. Like a battle isn't just it's not about the spectacle. It's 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 a, a vessel to carry the story forward. And I feel like there was a beat missed in the long night, uh the you know, the Winterfell battle of season eight, where not a whole lot like the battle was the story there. Like individual characters, like what was Brienne up to? Like you saw snippets, but there was no progression of character there. There was no forward momentum in individual storylines throughout that battle. It was just like, this is a battle, right? But Watchers on the Wall, there were multiple storylines being being told throughout that episode. John uh, defending the wall and making the tough call uh, for leadership. Um, when he sends people down to defend the inner gate, uh, his interactions with Ygritte, um like Ollie's uh, role in that whole battle, Sam and Pip, like doing their do and Sam worrying about Gilly. Like there are so many story threads happening within the battle. That's what makes it engaging and fun to watch. 
because you actually care about what's happening with the characters because they have shit they're worried about and there's things going on you understand their motivations you know what they're doing you understand everything that's going on and on top of that really good special effects served to like heighten the stories being told not the story in and of itself you see the difference there's so much packed into that episode it's a wonderful episode might be one of my favorites like honestly there's so much story the action's really good it's compelling you're engaged from beginning to end it's got some really funny moments like sam comes into his fucking own in that episode and it's great he is so funny like pip is missing crossbow bolts all over the place and he finally gets one he goes oh i got one and sam goes great is it over <laughs> pip's like no it's like well then he hands him the next crossbow that's some funny shit but I think I think that's probably the difference maker. I know when the long night happened, I said it was a, a great example of telling the story without a lot of words. Um, and that's easy when there isn't a lot of story to tell. So, you know, take it with a you know, take it with a grain of salt. It is a good example of telling a story without using a lot of words, but the Watchers on the Wall is a great example of how a battle can enhance the plot and not become the plot. Not that I don't think battles can be the story. I just feel like, as far as this show is concerned, it's never been about the battles. It's been about the people. It's been about their stories and their interpersonal relationships and conflict with one another. That's what Game of Thrones is all about. Like, the best villains in the show are the political conniving ones. Tywin Lannister is one of the greatest villains, if not the best villain, of the fucking show. And he gets shot and killed on the crapper in season four. It's fucking great. And now we've, like, it's this nameless Ice King fear thing, which, granted, is a very compelling villain in its own way because no other villain in history, across any media that I can think of, has been as frightening or as feared or as powerful as the Night King without ever saying a word ever. The Night King never speaks. And that is an achievement that should be recognized. Meanwhile, Tywin never is shown uh, with his prowess on the battlefield. He's present on the battlefield. There's multiple times like during the war or when he saves King's Landing like He's present on the battlefield, but we never see him swing a sword. Instead, he is threatening because of his conniving, like planning, talking his way through problems. That's what Tywin's good at. And that is also an incredible villain. He does all his villainy without action, but with words. That's 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 power right there. It's fucking it's strong, it's good. But season four is is great. And I I'm I haven't checked this, but I'm relatively certain. Uh, season 4 also hallmarks the end of the Divergent. Like, elements from the books continue through Seasons 5, 6, and I think a little bit into Season 7. Um, but Season 7 and Season 8 are pretty much full past the books. Um, season 4, I believe, was the first instance where storylines progressed beyond where the books were at the time. And a lot of people say that's like when the show kind of started to go downhill. Uh, and it depends on who you talk to because in terms of viewers Game of Thrones never went downhill it only got more popular but when they got past the books the writers of the show were not willing to take the same risks that Martin was with his characters and people started dying a lot fucking less and if the rumors I've heard are true 
Uh, I think they're going to take a really cheap way out and use the final episode to annihilate virtually every character. Um, granted, I mean, that's just my prediction because what do they have to lose? The show's over, you know? It doesn't matter if anybody lives or dies because the show ends either way. But I really... I've, I've spoken before in the audiobook, really, um, when I'm diving into book seven of Harry Potter, how death is used in Harry Potter as a cheap, manipulative, emotional ploy to evoke sadness out of the reader. Killing for no reason. Like, there's no narrative purpose to be given from the death of Remus and Tonks, or the death of Lavender Brown, or the death of one of the Weasley twins. Like, there's nothing gained there. Or when Hedwig dies. Nothing is gained from that. Not a thing. It's just sad. And it's just used there to make you sad. Death in Game of Thrones has been used to shock, to make you sad, to progress the story. Like, Martin kills a lot. And he was, you know, he's gone on the record a couple of times being like, you know, in, in realistic fantasy stories, the good guys and the bad guys die just as much as the innocent, like, you know, in the world, you know, people are just as likely to die no matter what. I think that's one of the best things about Martin's book is that he's not afraid to take risks. There's no such thing as plot armor with his fucking books, um, except for John. But with the show, I mean, there's plot armor for days. And I'm worried that they're going to kill fucking a bunch of people for no good reason just to shock and elicit an emotion out of us. And that's cheap. There are so many ways you can elicit emotional response out of your viewer or your reader or your listener beyond the mindlessly killing characters. So, I don't know. It, it, to me, it's cheap. Because death is easy. You can, you can kill off a character like that. It's not hard to kill characters. There's no challenge there. The challenge comes from other methods of removing characters. Death is the easiest one. You got a problem? Now they're dead. Not a problem anymore. It's like, I don't know. Some of the best writing I've had is when characters don't die. It's when something else happens, you know? Like uh, in Legend of Korra, when Korra becomes uh, traumatized at the end of season three, wheelchair bound because of what she went through. She's not the same person, and she never was after that. She was changed irrevocably forever, but she didn't die. So that's that, to me, is way more compelling. Way more interesting than if she just went, up. Oh, she's dead. Whoop, whoop, the fucking Look at me, I'm just a lazy writer, and I've killed my characters. There's so many better things you can do to them. Like, uh, in, in Game of Thrones, for example, Sansa goes through shit. She goes through hell and back and goes into hell again throughout the entire thing of the show. So many terrible things happen to Sansa, but she doesn't die. At least not yet. It's... And she grows as a character because of it. Daenerys goes through a bunch of shit. Doesn't die. At least not yet. Jon dies. Comes back. That was pretty cheap. Gotta be honest. But also goes through some shit. You know? Like, characters that overcome adversity and persevere through trauma are will always be more compelling than characters that just fucking snuff it. Especially if they don't have a compelling character to begin with. Like, uh, Catelyn Stark was pretty one-note, one-dimensional. She really cared about her family, and that's an admirable trait. But she didn't really have much else going on, and then when she died... Pfft, shrug. Apparently that storyline goes much 
goes in very different places in the uh, in the books, and I very much look forward to getting to that point. So, I've gone on a bit of a tangent here, but this was mostly to say that the first four seasons of Game of Thrones are pretty solid. Um, and in all honesty, like much much like my opinions of the Teen Titans original show, where you can stop watching after season four of Teen Titans because the finale there is pretty pretty nice. Um, I very much enjoy the story that I was told to me in season four, seasons three, seasons two, season one. But honestly, there's only one storyline that me as the viewer is curious to see what happens, and it's John's. Like Arya sails across to Bravos. All right. Um, Tyrion uh, gets on a boat with Varys and goes off somewhere. All right. Where happened to everybody else? I don't really care. It's always been about John. John has always been the most compelling, interesting character on the entire show. But at least that's that's where I'm at. Um, and it's it is a it's a great show. Game of Thrones has like say what you will about Game of Thrones, and I will readily admit that there are boring plot lines. There are episodes I would whole cloth skip. I couldn't tell you what they are right now. I'd have to go back and look, watch them. But there are whole, there are episodes that do not progress the plot. At least not the whole episode. Maybe elements of individual plot lines advance in certain episodes, but some some things can be cut for sure. Uh, but by and large, the excellent moments of Game of Thrones are the best moments of TV, and more than make up for the surrounding wool of the show. So I very much look forward to seeing episode five of season eight, because you know at this point i believe season eight is irrevocably damaged and cannot be recovered from the schlocky nature that they have executed it with uh but i want to see this dumpster fire burn out and just see how it ends because goddamn, they are shattering the goodwill that this show has generated and they're planning three spinoffs you guys needed to end this shit strong and you're super fucking not but here's my prediction if i was george r, r. martin and I saw what they did with my show at the end of it and like how it ended like really fucking crappily. One, if people are really against the ending, you've got time to change the fucking end of the book. But it would be the strongest PR move ever if Martin came out like the next day and went like, were you not happy with the ending of Game of Thrones? Well, don't worry, my new book comes out in two months. And you just drop that shit on us. And we're just like, oh fuck, let's go. That book would sell pre-orders like fucking wildfire. It would be crazy. I would buy it like that. Not I, don't, I haven't even read the other books, but I would fucking buy that shit. Because I've been sitting here going like, I bet it's better in the books. I bet it's going to be better in the books. And a lot of people are thinking that. And I want the fucking book. We all want the fucking book. People are clamoring for that book. If Martin has the ability to drop a release date soon after the finale of the show, he will make bank. He will make bank. He's like... That's what I'd be telling him. If I was his PR guy, I'd be like, look, George, you have a golden opportunity here. The show is sucking. You can save the whole thing if you drop a release date. It doesn't even need to be soon, but a guarantee, like by the end of the year, November 21st, 2019, the next book drops out. Fuck. It'd be crazy. It'd be insane. I'd love it. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing. Podcast.
this week for songs of the week we've got two classic songs that we're going to talk about one of course is the cover and the other one is a song that belongs on every feel-good song playlist i don't care who you are or how old you are first song we're going to talk about comes to us straight from of course guardians of the galaxy and made popular by the second movie and that is brandy you're a fine girl 1972 song written and composed by elliot lurie and recorded by elliot's band looking glass on their debut album released may 18th 1972 this song's all about that girl in the port who loves a sailor and sailor's like nah my heart belongs to the finally sorry um i'm not side tasking playing pokemon at, while I'm recording this, and I finally just found the Ralts 4% chance goddamn bullshit. Anyway, Brandy's a beautiful song, and I love it, and got the soundtrack to those Guardians movies are just so goddamn top tier. And I did a little cover of Brandy, so let's take a listen. And of course, the other song I want to talk about this week is really inspired by my recent viewing of the Detective Pikachu movie, and that is the original Pokemon theme, Gotta Catch Em All, recorded between 1998 and 1999, released of June 29th, 1999, performed by Jason Page. This song is iconic, would be a, would be a good way to phrase it, and it's been covered quite a bit. Um, there's a there's a good cover I enjoy from Power Glove, which is this power metal band that does covers of 90s uh, theme shows and video game music. And they do a pretty good cover of this. And of course, I I enjoy, I call it the long play version, because the, the version you hear in front of like episodes of the show isn't nearly as long as um, the, the full version. And it's like three minute song. It's a great fucking song, the whole thing. I'm a real big fan of the Pokemon theme and it pumps me right the hell up like every good pump up song should and if you have a song that you would like to suggest for song of the week feel free to shoot me an email at goncast at gmail.com or using the contact page at goncast.com but for now let's move on to the next thing in the podcast hey gang it is i coming to you live from the inside of my car i'm already at gas and i just went and saw Detective Pikachu over in the movies. So just right out the gate, I will grudgingly agree that it is the best video game movie ever made. That being said, it is not a very good movie in its own right. It's better than like Street Fighter the movie and Warcraft the movie, but let's fucking be honest, these movies all kind of suck. And so did Detective Pikachu. It was very much by the numbers. There were there was absolutely no plot surprises, at least from my point of view, because I had it pegged that Pikachu was his dad since the fucking trailer came out, um, where he's like, so there I was. I woke up in the middle of the forest with no memory of who I am, except with this hat, with this address that led me here. And I'm just like, okay, well, 
the Pokemon Mystery Dungeon games are all about humans being turned into Pokemon, and one of the linchpins of that whole game is that you don't have your memories, and when you get your memories back, you're no longer a Pokemon, and it's super sad, and that's why those games are awesome. So, I, like, I had this shit figured out a long time ago, and I was like, honest to God, I hoped I was wrong. I, I wanted nothing more than to be wrong. I wanted for it to be a big old surprise or whatever that I wasn't what I was expecting. And now, Pikachu's is dead. And his dad is just Ryan Reynolds, and Ryan Reynolds is there. And I even had some people be like, Ryan Reynolds can't be his dad. And I was like, why? And it was like, because he's black. And I'm just like, that's not how that works at all. But it's, God damn it. Uh, racism. Anyway, uh, the movie was fine. I will, I will give it a fine. It, um, as, as a lifelong Pokemon fan, like true hardcore lifelong Pokemon fan, I watched that shit when I was a kid. I had the cards. Been playing the games forever. So I appreciated a couple of elements of the film uh, that, like, that were only really there for the diehards. Like, uh, I, I loved uh, the fact that. Um, when Ditto transformed, they retained their little beady eyes, which is a hallmark of the character Ditto. I like the fact that uh, stepping on Charizard's tail was an obvious weak spot, uh, because you know if you extinguish the flame on a Charmander's, or Charizard's tail, yeah. If you extinguish the flame on a Charmander's tail, it dies. So I liked that a lot. Um, the overall look of the CGI Pokemon was fine. Um, I thought Pikachu was easily the best of that like whole crew like I thought he looked the best um possibly because he had motion capture to help him with the facial features and with the adorable voice of Ryan Reynolds coming out of that yellow little puffball um that was easily the uh the coup de gras of their CG efforts so that was very good um the rest of the, the Pokemon are fine I personally hated the fifth generation of Pokemon and seeing so many of 5th gen, um, just, just abound. Uh, I would say it's a pretty balanced spread. I don't recall seeing any Pokemon from beyond 5th gen, though. Um, at all. I don't remember, there were no, uh, Alolan Pokemon, there was no Gen 6. I think we're on Gen 8 now. Um, there's no Gen 6 or Gen 7, at least as far as I could see. Uh, a lot of Gen 4 and Gen 5, a couple of Gen 3s, couple of Gen 2s, um, and then, of course, Gen 1 uh, with, like, Mewtwo and shit. So, you know, pretty well-balanced spread. The music was pretty decent. Uh, Henry Jackman, who did the music for Winter Soldier uh, and a couple of other fairly large films. Um, he's actually been in more films than I, like, when I looked at the list. I can't recall it now, but it's, it's a surprising number of decent films that he's done the music for. And the music in this movie was pretty good. Um... They had two different versions of the original Pokemon theme song. There's an instrumental version, and uh, Ryan Reynolds, uh, while he's like really bummed out, sings it as Pikachu, and it's fucking great. That's probably the best moment of the film. And that's about it of, of like positive stuff. The acting was bad. Um, I've described it as straight to TV Nickelodeon movie acting. Uh, it's not good. Um, the, the two main leads in massive air quotes because they don't really do much throughout the whole film. Uh, their characters are incredibly one-dimensional. Their acting performances are benign and, uh, schlocky. And it doesn't surprise me that, uh, Ryan Reynolds was able to outclass them as an animated mouse. So, 
there you go. And that being said, even his performance wasn't the best. It was funny, but it was like, he was clearly better than everybody else in the film, which isn't, again, difficult to do. We're saying Ryan Reynolds is the best actor in the Pokemon movie. It's saying that Pokemon is the best video game movie of all time. It's the exact same thing. It's really not saying much because what you're comparing it to is sucks so goddamn badly that it's not even a contest. So, and there are people in this movie that had no earthly right in being in this fucking movie. What the goddamn shit was Ken Watanabe doing in this film? He is way too good for this. Same for Bill Nye, but whatever. Perhaps I'm biased and think better of these people than they just wanted a paycheck, but oh well. I will say that I don't think Danny DeVito would have been the right person for the role. Um, you needed the comedic as much as you needed the, the emotional poignancy, which they, they tried. They really went for it. They really tried. Uh, so I'll give them a nod for that, but it was not executed as well as it could have been but you know this is a solid c movie it's not atrocious to watch there's nothing like wrong in the film that they they like accomplish you know there, there was no missteps really it's very by the numbers um it was safe uh it had a couple of elements that they kind of introduce for no real reason um, and one of those elements was there was this bit where they go to the genetic Pokemon lab uh, to figure out what the fuck happened with Mewtwo. And they talk about the Torterra Garden. And Torterra was the um, uh, third stage evolution for Turdtwig, I think, in Gen 4? Pretty sure. Um, and they're huge. They're these giant, they're mountain sized. Torteras. And as like as far as I can tell, they stand up and sit back down uh, to reveal their presence only to settle right the fuck back down. Um, and that whole thing was basically done to have Pikachu get hurt. And then they find Mewtwo and the rest of the like it was this really cool element of these god-tier giant, like mountain-sized Pokemon that they just didn't do anything with. And I'm just kind of, I just kind of shrugged and went, okay, well then, what was the point of that? There was, there was no point. It happened a couple of times in the film. A scene would occur, or an element would happen, where it just kind of seems like it existed to talk about that Pokemon, uh, and that was it. There was, there was no plot, momentum, and like, it just, it didn't make a lot of sense. And uh, the best thing I can compare it to would be Austin Powers. Uh, Austin Powers developed whole characters and whole scenarios in that film, not to progress the plot, but to sell a joke. Um, and you look like fairly successfully, like there's Patty O'Brien, right? The ex-Irish assassin, uh, with, with the little bracelet and that, that whole character and that whole thing is set up just so you can get an Irish person in this movie going, yeah, they're always after me, lucky charms. That was the whole point of that joke. That's, that's all it existed there for, was to tell that joke and admire the passion behind that, to just be like, you know what, that's the only reason you're here, is to say, yeah, they're always after my lucky charms. And that's how I felt like in this Pokemon movie. It was like, this exists so we could do this cool scene. They, they came up with the scene before they came up with a reason for it to be in the film, and the reason they came up for it to be in the film was not very good. So that is, um, that's just kind of one of the things. It's fine. Um... Not not theater worthy at all. There's nothing. There's 
The spectacle of the film is okay, um, but you're gonna get the same amount of impact on the small screen as you will on the big screen, so very little to be gained from that. Um, the movie itself isn't very good, so I wouldn't pay the movie theater prices anyway. Um, that being said, it did decently well in the box office. I think it's the highest grossing video game movie of all time on opening weekend, which is fucking good for, good for Detective Pikachu. Um, and honestly, this might be a little strange after me just tearing it to shreds, but now that they've developed the world, and honestly, the world is probably the most believable part of the whole film. Um, it's very Zootopia, you know, where predators and prey can live together side by side. It's where people and Pokemon can live together in Rhyme City. They've, they've developed the world, and it's a decent cast. It's a decent cast of characters. It's got Ryan Reynolds as, like, a detective, and there's, there's solid, honest to God, there is solid sequel potential here of just a good old-fashioned, like, buddy cop movie with this kid and Pikachu. They could do it. And if they think that the movie generated enough income, like, I'll see a second one. Um, sure. Yeah. Like, it's not great, but I think the foundation is significantly solid enough and Pokemon is definitely popular enough to to pull out that one off. So, yeah, Detective Pikachu 2, Mewtwo Strikes Back, or you get, like, an Anti. Like, that's the thing about, uh, about Pokemon is that as many good Pokemon characters as there are, there is a significant number of decent villains you can pull from to make a solid sequel. So I hope it becomes a franchise. I kind of do. Uh, I think it's got. I think it's got the legs to go to the distance on that one. And we could be seeing Pikachu Pokemon movies for for a while. They they laid down a solid foundation, and I hope they utilize it. So uh, anyway, I am about to get gas at Costco, and when I'm done with that, I'm gonna go home and play Pokemon. Um, not because of this film. I wanted to play Pokemon like this morning when I knew I was going to see the film and the film did not make me want to play Pokemon more, but it didn't really detract from my desire to play Pokemon. So I had like kind of a net gain impact on my desire to play Pokemon, but I'll just shrug my shoulders and go play Pokemon anyway. I'm not sure which version I'm going to play, but, uh, I want to do a, I think I want to do a Nuzlocke run. So Maybe I'll pop in, like, Pokemon X or something like that. One of the ones I haven't played in a long-ass time. So, anyway, uh, that is uh, pretty much my review of Detective Pikachu. Not bad. Not worth seeing in theaters. But I, I more or less enjoyed it, and I can't wait for the second one. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Batch of Harry Potter chapters. Chapter 13, The Secret Riddle. Chapter 14, Felix Felicis. And Chapter 15, The Unbreakable Vow. We're actually ramping up to Christmas in Book 6, and my god, it's like fucking summer. Which meant this came at the absolute worst time. Oh well, such is life. These chapters will drop tomorrow night. And I don't want to spoil anything that goes on in these chapters, so I will leave it as a surprise. No highlights for this week. You'll have to listen and find all the jokes in there yourself. Yes, indeed. Drop tomorrow night around 8 o'clock. <laughs> and uh, there'll be three chapters again next week, and so on and so forth until the end of time. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast.
Going Upcast, we like to talk about music, and the other day I witnessed a brand new documentary that I wanted to talk about. It's called Devil at the Crossroads. It's the Robert Johnson story, and if you don't know who Robert Johnson is, he is essentially the forefather, the godfather, the prodigal son of blues music in the Mississippi Delta. And he is credited with basically spawning the blues, which spawned rock and roll, which spawned basically all the music I listened to, except for folk music. And not a lot is known about Mr. Robert Johnson. He died at the young age of 27. And there are two known photographs of Robert Johnson. There was no footage. And he recorded a couple of albums, and that's it. Before he was whisked away from this world to the land of the beyond. And I think what really what really piqued my interest about the uh, the documentary is that it focused on this this myth, this legend surrounding Robert Johnson. When Robert Johnson first hit the scene of the music world, he sucked. He was middling to crap. People were like, "Meh, get that kid off the guitar. He doesn't know what he's doing." Then he vanished for a year. Nobody knew where he went. Nobody knew what he was doing. When he came back, one year later, he was the best goddamn guitarist any of them had ever seen. The other musicians of the day were all looking at each other and going like, what did he do? What did this kid do? And the legend goes that Robert Johnson took his guitar to the crossroads and he knelt down. And out of the mist before him came a very large black man. Robert Johnson held up his guitar and the black man took it. And he tuned that son of a bitch and he handed it right back. And that man was the devil. Robert Johnson sold his soul to be the greatest guitarist of all time. And when you make a deal with the devil, the bill comes due. And I was like, damn, that's a fucking, that's a story. That it all started with a deal with the devil. Like all, all the blues and rock and roll. Started the way at a fucking hell yeah, it should have. The, the Faustian contract. And that's the first half hour of the documentary. And then it proceeds to talk about what probably actually happened. Where Robert Johnson went up to Tennessee for a year and trained with his mentor guitarist. Which is infinitely less interesting than the myth that he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads. So, you know, I'm going to choose to believe the first myth. Uh, because I think that explains a lot about the magic of rock and roll and the blues and heavy metal. And it all spawns from a, from a supernatural ritual right at the dawn of it. Oh, man. Super good. Super good. But it does explain that this myth kind of came out of this, uh, this period in history when the idea of blues music was being condemned by the priests of the South because the men of the towns were going to these places called juke joints, I think is what they called them. And they were making money, like gambling and uh, earning money with their music and stuff like that, and the priests weren't being paid anything. So what the priests did, because uh, the only people that were going to church were the wives of these men, said that the music was satanic, and if you played or listened to the devil's music, you were going to hell. Which basically guilted all the, the wives into bringing their husbands to church on Sunday. So that they would not make more money than the priests. So, it all started 
all this, all the like heavy metal, the devil's music, all that shit started with that, with some jealous priests that couldn't make the dough in a time when dough was hard to come by, in a time when dough was fucking needed. And I'm just kind of like, that's how it all began. And if you enjoy like that style of historical musical stuff, then you should watch the Robert Johnson uh, thing now on Netflix. I believe it's called Devils at the Crossroads, the Robert Johnson story. It's like 45 minutes long, and it's mostly animated, which is kind of fun. Uh, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend it. Certainly got me thinking. And in case you're wondering, I went and listened to Robert Johnson stuff, and he's all right. He's fine. Um, you know, it's kind of you got to appreciate the music in the time in which it was written because compared to nowadays stuff, um, that's not great, but you know, you gotta, gotta appreciate it in the time period. And back then nobody else could do what he did. So he's a legend in his own right then and there. Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil to be the greatest goddamn guitarist in the world. Fuck yeah. Let's move on to the next thing. Podcast. Episode 5 of Season 8 of Game of Drones. Thrain of Groans. D&D fucked up. Anyway, uh, this episode is called something. Um, I'm going to call it the Siege of King's Landing um, while I actively click on the second monitor to tell you exactly what this episode is called. Quickly looks at it. It's called uh, The Bells. That's pretty good. That's better than the Siege of King's Landing. Anyway, uh, this episode's all about the Siege of King's Landing. And, you know, the army rolls up, and um, everybody's all ready to just conquer the city. And uh, uh, despite the fact that the other two dragons went out like punk bitches, uh, Drogon fucking annihilates the Iron Fleet in, like, one fell swoop because, you know, he's a dragon. And then he blows the front gates of the... Uh, the the walls open and basically the army rushes in Drogon uh, destroys all the scorpion bolts and uh, the bells ring and the army surrenders in like the first 15 minutes of the episode I'm like oh that was quick so we'll be able to get to like you know some political signings and uh, Cersei uh, being publicly executed and everybody's all happy and shit oh oh oh, wait no Danny what are you doing Danny the bells are ringing Danny stop it no Danny no no and then she just fucking lays waste to the entire city, killing thousands, hundreds of thousands. It said there was a million people inside King's Landing, and they're basically all fucking dead. So she went all mad queen on us, um, which means all of her, like, I will not let one innocent life die to take a city. The the, the masters are not innocent. You know, she's like, all that shit. And um, hell, this was telegraphed all the way back in season five when she started losing her goddamn mind. She doesn't, she wasn't, god damn it. Danny was so fucking well-developed in those early seasons. Like, you understood her motivations, you saw her point of view. She was powerful, yet, like, com- compassionate and understanding. And then all of a sudden, because of just the sheer amount of betrayal she underwent and loss, she lost her goddamn mind and destroyed King's Landing almost not even almost single-handedly she destroyed king's landing we lost a couple of characters in this episode for sure lord varus the master whispers dead uh cersei and jamie lannister dead uh sir uh, gregor and sandor clegane 
Fucking the Hound went out like a goddamn hero. We got Clegane Bowl 2019. It was okay. Uh, it was not bad. Um, but the fucking Hound went out like a fucking champion. What a hero. That dude was great. That's that's probably the only good the good part of the the, the fucking episode. And I also want to give nod to the Hound having he's probably the only character arc that didn't get horribly mutilated by season eight. Like from beginning to end, you knew all what he was about, and he fucking succeeded. And he went out like a goddamn champion. So drinks to the hound. He he stuck to his guns. He never deviated, at least as far as I'm aware. I haven't watched seasons six and seven, and I'm halfway through season five, and I'm actively fast forwarding through bits of it. But um, man, he went he went out like a goddamn champion. Arya's still around. Tyrion's still around. Jon Snow's still around. Danny's still around. Um, but at this point, two things are gonna happen. One. Everyone's gonna die. Um, my everyone. Dan John is gonna have to put Danny down, and probably become the new king. Um, Arya, I don't know what Arya's gonna do. Sansa's probably gonna live. Sansa's Sansa's gonna survive. I think Arya's gonna survive because if she just if she lived through the siege of King's Landing and all the fucking horrible nonsense she got put through, um, only to ride out of the fucking wreckage on horseback. How did that horse survive? Um, she's gonna live. I think I think John's gonna put Danny down, um, and Drogon's probably gonna kill him when he does that. That'd be my guess if I had to guess. Um, or so like I don't know. It's it's tough to really determine how this is gonna go. Um, I'm excited to see the final episode. It, like next week on Game of Thrones, I did the end episode. Told us like fucking nothing. We have no idea what next week is gonna be about. Um, but rumors are stirring in the east, and there was a video that was posted of Sir Barristan claiming that George R. R. Martin has finished books six and seven and they're ready to go. And there was an agreement made between Martin and the showrunners to not release the books until the show was completed. I doubt they're gonna both drop on the same day. That'd be absurd and ludicrous, but I would not be surprised if within the month of May, Martin announced the release dates of book six I'd say, like, lowest expectation. He's going to tell us when book six comes out. Um, and it's going to be available for pre-orders in the month of May. Because if he wants these books to sell at their maximum... Like, Game of Thrones is more popular right now than it ever will be moving forward. If he wants to make as big of an impact as possible, dropping the release date after the finale, like, the day after, is when I would do it, quite frankly... Um, cause you know, the show's on a Sunday, Monday, top of the, top of the day, bam, here's, here's when the shit drops. Tell all the news outlets, book six of Game of Thrones comes out, you know, July 1st. It'll like, we'll pre-order it like a motherfucker. I don't think he's just going to drop the book. There's no way he's just going to be like, books out, go get it. There's no way. Bookstores wouldn't be able to, and we would know, we would know, nobody would be able to keep that secret. So I think it'll be a release date announcement. There's no way he's going to drop like book six and seven. But I, I think it is it is very likely that that is going to go down. And I'm very excited for it. I have the monumental task of reading the first five Game of Thrones books uh, before probably a couple of months. Uh, at the at the soonest end of the year by the latest. We'll get book we'll get book six. And if he is truly done, then we could probably expect to see book seven next year. Um, and the only reason I would space it out like that is simply to have the most impact. You know, you want the book to come out. You want to give people time to read the book. And you want to wait for people to gestate enough interest to get the next book, but not wait too long so that they lose interest. 
he only got away with it with book six because of the show, you know? So that's that's how this this pans out. If I was this PR guy, I would absolutely be sitting him down and being like, George, you got it, you gotta get it done. Think about it, man. You want you want this book to be a New York Times bestseller, the number one pre-ordered book of all time? You gotta announce that shit when season eight comes to an end. You gotta do it, George. And George will be like, okay, I'll do it. So that's my prediction. Episode five was fine. Um, better than the last week. I'll give him that. Um, oh, Bran's probably going to outlive this series as well. He's probably not going to die. I think Tyrion is going to... I think Tyrion's going to die. He's probably going to be like the... His death will be like the focus. His and Danny's death will be the focus of next week. Um, and then John will be crowned uh, King of the Andals. Lord of the First Men. Even though he doesn't want it, but oh well. John just should have stayed at the wall. He'd have been happier. But uh, that's enough about Game of Thrones. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Finally, this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about me playing Pokemon again, because I'm playing the Pokemon. I restarted Alpha Sapphire, which is the probably my my favorite. I think Heart Gold is my true favorite, um, next to, like, Crystal. But because of the fact that I'm most likely never going to play Heart Gold again, because I can't, I can't go back to the 2D. I can't do it. I'm so used to the 3D of the uh, of like X and Sun and Moon, and I found. All right, sorry. I'm I'm currently at this very moment. I am grinding on Route 102 for that fucking four percent routes, and I've seen it one time, and I didn't have any goddamn Pokeballs for it. Because I spent them all catching everything else on the fucking route. And I've seen Surskit three times now, and it has a 1% chance of being found. Which is horse shit. That I've seen that motherfucker three times, and I've only seen the routes once. Um, if I see a Surskit before I see another routes, then these percentages are wrong. Just straight up. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm playing Alpha Sapphire again. And I thought about doing the, the Nuzlocke run, um, but I can never hold to it. Like, I, I care for my Pokemans too much. So instead, what I'm doing is I'm playing Pokemon the way I've always played Pokemon. Um, I used to have, like, the paper guides back in the day that would tell me exactly who I would find and what items I would find on every single route. And basically, um, I don't like to completionist the Pokemon games because I don't care to catch them all. Um, I just want the most interesting Pokemon on each route. And then I kind of make my team from that um, pool of, of characters. Uh, so, like, right now, I've got my Torchic named Feathers, uh, who is, he's level 8, which makes catching routes at level 3 on this route, uh, difficult, because the, the odds of me one-shotting that fucking routes is pretty damn high. The fucking low tad, goddamn 15%. Anyway, uh, it's, it, that's how I was always, I always played Pokemon, was I was just, I would like to pay witness to see who was around, uh, where I could catch them, and Nuzlocke's, it's always like, you know, you got you got this, like, you got your first shot, and it's, like, in each, at least in this game, that means your team is going to be made of Zigzagoons and Wurmples and Puccinas and Oddish, and I'm just like, they all fucking suck, and I hate them all. Um, anyway, yeah, that's me playing Pokemon, and I look forward to watching my team just grow. I also want a Wingle. I want a Wingle. I want to, I'm going to name them Feathers, but I'm going to spell it differently. I'm going to have Feathers and Feathers, and whatever the fuck the Ralts is going to be called. Probably not feathers, um, but we'll see. We'll see how I'm feeling. Might call it fucking finally or something like that. But I want to thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up Cast. 
It was a pretty doozy. Uh, I recovered a lot of ground in this week's episode. Hope you enjoy Harry Potter tomorrow night. And I will probably uh, talk to you all in a little, little while because I'm in San Jose this fucking week. And I'm going to go see a kick-ass metal show. And I'm very much excited about it. And I'll be sure to tell you all about it next week on the Going Upcast. Talk to you all later.